0: Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys.
1: Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me is Brendan Noonan from our communications team. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Eric Harrison from the law firm of Methesel and Werbel in Edison, New Jersey. Eric is a partner with the firm and manages the firm's administrative law department and specializes in the defense of civil rights, employment, special education, insurance coverage, and general liability litigation. He is also an author and lecturer on various insurance topics and issues, and Eric, we're very pleased to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Today's topic is bullying and insurance coverage, and Brendan Noonan is going to lead off with our first question.
2: Uh, Eric, what is bullying, and why is litigation over bullying an increasing concern?
0: Brendan Bullying has been around forever, but, of course, as soon as a label is appropriated, it can take on new forms and we can take old behavior that used to be ignored and cast aside and brand it with the label bullying. Here in New Jersey, it falls within a broad definition of harassment, intimidation, or bullying. Our statute calls it, uh, for short, HIV conduct. It's as broad as any gesture, a written, verbal, or physical act or any electronic communication that can be reasonably perceived as motivated by a protected characteristic or a perceived characteristic such as race, color, religion, disability, gender identity. So it's a very broad definition and also some conduct that one would typically call bullying, a punch in the face for example, wouldn't necessarily fit the category of bullying because One requires a motivational component of the definition. Why did Johnny do this to Sally? And if it's based on a perceived characteristic of Sally's, then it might be bullying. If not, it's just misbehavior. Either way, it's a problem, but the way it gets litigated can be determined by that motivation.
2: What kinds of lawsuits are being filed over bullying?
0: Well, we have traditional tort lawsuits, the kinds that we've seen forever with claims like assault negligence, intentional infliction of emotional distress, invasion of privacy when it comes to the Internet-based stuff that we see. But more recently, we see an uptick in civil rights lawsuits, civil rights lawsuits because if conduct is based on a protected characteristic or a perception of a protected characteristic, then it could be an interference with the civil rights of the victim. And in the insurance industry and in the risk management industry generally, we cannot ignore the fact that most civil rights claims are made under statutes that carry fee shifting, which means that if the plaintiffs prevail, their attorney fees get paid by the other side.
1: Eric, who typically is being sued in these cases?
0: In uh, bullying cases nowadays, as broadly defined, we are seeing, of course, the students who are the bullies being sued. But because of the old expression, boys will be boys, and to some extent, girls will be girls, we're seeing claims made against their parents based on concepts under tort law like negligence, supervision. You should have known about this proclivity of your child or that your child was engaged in this. And more importantly, uh, we're seeing public entities targeted The schools, school administrators are being sued, all on the basis of vicarious liability. And the overarching theory is, you did this to my child, or you knew or should have known that conduct was going on that you could have prevented that resulted in this injury to my child.
2: Can you explain where insurance coverage comes in?
0: Sure. In a typical John versus Sally lawsuit, if, uh, let's say, Sally did the punching and Sally intended to punch John, and John sues Sally, then... Sally might not have insurance coverage because of an intentional act exclusion in her parents' homeowner's insurance policy. But even the less sophisticated of the bar know that a typical complaint should include claims of not only assault and other intentional torts, but also negligence, and that will trigger homeowner's insurance coverage or at least possible homeowner's insurance coverage, claims against the parents of course for negligence supervision would trigger homeowners or renters insurance coverage and in the um, public entity world claims against school boards school districts teachers administrators would all trigger uh, at least a review of some sort of public official liability insurance coverage that would come into play.
1: Eric what type of coverage issues arise under homeowners or rental
0: policies? Oh uh, Well, when when these claims are made against individuals, either students or parents, the first thing you always have to look at is the definition of bodily injury. What type of coverage is provided? And in your traditional assault case, when punches are thrown and the assailant says, he started or she started, or I didn't mean to hurt him, I just wanted to get him away from me, then you get into questions of, well, is there bodily injury? Usually the answer is yes if a punch is thrown. The next question is, was it intentional? And the intentional act exclusions in these policies are often worded very differently. In some of them, you will see an avoidance of the exclusion by an argument that the damage that ensued was an unanticipated result of intentional conduct or unexpected result of intentional conduct, and in that respect, the putative insured can get around the exclusion or at least raise a jury question, so to speak, so there will be a duty to defend. And then a jury might have to determine, well, did Johnny really mean to break Susie's nose or did he just want her to get away? So that's the intentional act exclusion that can be relevant. We also have nowadays, because so much of bullying is cyberbullying, what kind of injury is alleged here? A typical frontline homeowner's policy will have bodily injury coverage and economic injury coverage, but personal injury is defined in the insurance world somewhat differently from bodily injury, and in certain policy forms, it's limited to very specific types of torts, defamation. You can get into false imprisonment claims. So sometimes some of these claims, if it's harassment online, for example, can fall into the netherworld between bodily injury and personal injury. And oftentimes we see riders to homeowners insurance policies which provide coverage, but limited coverage for these types of claims. And it's very important, no matter what side of the fence you're on in litigating them, to figure out what policies implicate it and what does that policy provide. It also gives you a sense of How can these cases be most efficaciously settled so you don't litigate it and run out the coverage that's available and be left with nothing on either side?
1: Eric, how about coverage for the schools?
0: Coverage for the schools implicates the kind of policies that have been around for 15 to 20 years but are only in recent years pretty universal to school boards and school districts and their employees. A typical tort claim will trigger a general liability policy and a civil rights claim will typically trigger coverage under an errors and omissions policy or a public officials liability policy. The important difference between those two is that GL, general liability policies, generally have exclusions for intentional acts and they generally have um, requirements of actual bodily injury. And under an E&O policy, Arizona omissions policy, you typically do not see such exclusions. You'll always see exclusions for punitive damages. But when you're looking at these school policies, you know, you're going to be covering employees. You're going to be covering administrators. There's always going to be the possibility that an act is taken beyond the scope of one's employment. And if so, there's a risk to the employee that the insurer is going to decline to provide coverage. If a teacher uh, follows a kid home from school, or if a teacher from his online account posts something threatening on Facebook, then the school could very well want to distance itself from that teacher, and the insurance carrier could do so as well, because generally speaking, the coverage extends to employees of the named insured while acting within the scope of their authority. And there are time, place, manner definitions that apply to the scope of what they do to the point where some of this kind of conduct might not necessarily be covered by insurance. They might have to go to their own homeowners, and that could pose problems as well, depending on the language of those policies.
2: What issues do insurers and defense attorneys need to focus in defending against these claims?
0: Well, in any case, when you're talking about bullying, you're typically talking, at least currently, you're typically talking about student-on-student conduct or teacher-on-student conduct. And as defense attorneys, we have to remember we're human beings, and a lot of us are parents as well, and jurors are parents as well. So the sympathy factor initially is always going to be there for someone who claims I was so badly bullied that I have to come to court protection because I didn't get it where I needed it, the nature of the damages being sought, a lot of us in the defense bar and in the insurance industry say, well, if I don't have a report from a mental health professional, then this isn't much of a claim. I'm not a fan of that way of thinking. You can have a very, very psychologically or emotionally damaged human being who can evoke sympathy in a jury and get a six or seven figure verdict without putting a psychiatrist on the witness stand. Similarly, um, you can also have folks who are being referred to mental health professionals by their lawyers who are going to issue boilerplate reports, finding that everybody has post-traumatic stress disorder, and those claims could be worth very little or nothing. The biggest change in the litigation of bullying-type claims over the last five years that I've seen is that more and more of them, when public entities are involved, are including civil rights claims. If Johnny uses a pejorative term towards Sally, based on his perception that she's not intelligent, and I'm being very politically correct here, and it happens that uh, Sally is a classified student who receives special education, and that the school knew or should have known of this type of behavior by Johnny, then a creative plaintiff's attorney will allege a violation of the Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act or the Rehabilitation Act or a state civil rights law, and those claims all carry fee-shifting. And in any fee-shifting scenario, the plaintiff is incentivized to litigate very, very heavily because the more litigation occurs, the more valuable the claim becomes, Because in fee shifting, generally speaking, a plaintiff can get a modest award of a couple thousand dollars, and typically there is no proportionality requirement. Therefore, that attorney for the plaintiff could then apply for fees and find him or herself with a six figure fee award. So, one of the most important approaches to litigating these claims is to number one, obviously, you want to get all the facts, and if it looks like a case of exposure and all the other factors on your side point to it as being the right thing to do, you want to try to settle the claim early. But if you can't, then you need to look at undercutting the fee-shifting claims, and the best way to do that is through an offer of judgment, which I know seminars have been done to discuss them, and I think it's an underused tool, at least in the area where I practice. An offer of judgment for a some certain plus reasonable fees to be determined by the court. Even if you know it's not going to be accepted, the fact that you made it early on in the case, it could save you hundreds of thousands of dollars down the line if the plaintiff ultimately recovers something modest. As to insurers' approaches to this, when you have a case of significant exposure based on conduct, which may or may not be covered, depending on how the facts play out at trial, You may want to defend under a reservation of rights, and if it looks like the case can't be settled and it's going to go to trial, it's probably worth the expense of getting coverage counsel involved in the case in order to litigate coverage defenses. And obviously you can't have your assigned attorney doing that because his fidelity lies with the insured. But in big exposure cases, protecting your policy defenses usually requires that you get separate coverage counsel.
2: Conversely, what can we expect plaintiff's attorneys to do in processing these claims?
0: When a plaintiff's attorney is prosecuting a bullying claim, you're going to see all the traditional stuff that you see in any type of personal injury litigation. But when fee shifting is involved, you're going to see a lot of litigation activity probably early in the case. And obviously, as in any scenario, there's going to be a focus on the deep pocket. So if you have Johnny and Johnny's parents as defendants, and a school district that knew Johnny had been taunting Sally for a long time and didn't do anything about it on the basis that boys will be boys and she has to learn to defend herself and toughen up, chances are the plaintiff's attorneys are going to focus their case primarily on that school district, not only because, depending on the personalities of the people who would go on the witness stand, it can make a more appetizing target for them, but also because it's the deeper pocket. So when entities get involved and there's an opportunity to aim the blame, so to speak, towards those entities, if those entities have a track record of having been asleep at the switch, we can expect a change in focus in how the cases get litigated. Also, the civil rights claims that carry fee shifting typically cannot be directed against private individuals. They'll be directed against those schools. And as a result, the plaintiff's attorney and the plaintiff have a vested financial interest in targeting those defendants over the others, not necessarily cutting out the others, but emphasizing the claims against those entities.
1: And how do you see bullying litigation and insurance coverage developing over the next
0: decade? Like all litigation involving individuals and institutions, it's going to expand based on how social media has changed the landscape. The traditional time and space limitations on the school day and hours have given way to the reality of 24-7 Facebook postings, Twitter feeds, etc., We have parents and educators who are increasingly expected to be vigilant about conduct that's occurring not only at school but off campus, during the school day, after hours. And insurance products are going to expand and contract based on how these claims play out in the marketplace and what happens in court. We have behavior now, like it or not, that was never deemed egregious or compensable under our laws 20, 30 years ago. And because of highly reported cases with terrible facts, we're going to have increased sensitivity to it. We're going to have both through the development of the common law and through new statutory amendments, we're going to have a greater openness to such claims. And any time a claim becomes more accepted in the law, there's going to be a rush of frivolous claims along with the legitimate ones. And as a result of that, it's something that's going to have to be taken more seriously. And we're going to have jurors who are younger and more attuned to social media and more receptive to those arguments. So while the common law is typically slow to develop in catching up to modern day realities, state legislators necessarily uh, are not. And juries come with those sensibilities about what's really happening out in the world. So we're going to see an expansion of that, which is called bullying, and we're going to see probably insurance products which protect carriers and put a lid on how much coverage can be purchased for it or to increase premiums based on, you know, loss experience. And as a result, to make everybody more attuned to it, both, on the ground in terms of what our kids are doing at home and in school and in what kind of insurance coverage we need to protect ourselves and to protect our schools.
1: Eric, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: That was Attorney Eric Harrison from the law firm of Methessel & Werbel in Edison, New Jersey. Special thanks to Brendan Innan from our communications team and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. At I'm John Zubat, joined by Brendan Noonan, and now this message.